with me this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. How about that snow yesterday? I'm so proud of myself having shoveled and shoveled and shoveled and shoveled only for about midnight to hear that sound. You know that sound. You see the lights going and the city plow truck is coming to make all your work for naught. And so uh, there's a day that I remember like this where, remember like yesterday, Oh, about 12 years ago now, I was a freshman in college, and it was Thanksgiving break. And for those of you who played in the Turkey Bowl that Thanksgiving, you'll remember the snow that we played in. But it was Thanksgiving break, and I lived about 20 minutes north of the Georgia border in Cleveland, Tennessee. And it was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And my plan was, rather than drive the 10 and a half hours home on my own, I would swing around to Nashville hop in the car with my uncle and his family, and then drive up for Thanksgiving. Thought, easy, you know, two hours versus ten and a half hours of driving, not so bad. So I swung up to Nashville, and we got a pretty late start in the afternoon for that eight-hour drive uh, up here. And uh, I hopped in the car and had a great time talking with them and having a good time as we were driving home for the Thanksgiving holiday. We got to Cincinnati and got out at a gas station just north of the city, and the snow started to come down pretty heavily. Uh, It was getting pretty nasty out, and it was getting late in the evening. Like I said, we'd gotten a late start, and it was getting pretty late in the evening, and as we're, I ran in and grabbed some food, and as we're getting back to the car, my uncle grabs the keys and says, think fast, and tosses them to me. And I said, what's this? And he said, you're going to drive us the rest of the way in. He said, your aunt and I worked all day, we're exhausted, well, we're going we're gonna to take a rest and you're going to drive us in. Now, I'd only made this drive on my own once before, but I hadn't made it in snow, nor had I made it in a minivan. I'd never driven anything bigger than, you know, a, a Chrysler LeBaron at this point, and I had never had that kind of responsibility hoisted upon me to have my uncle, his wife his eight- and six-year-old daughter's in the back seat, and he throws me the keys in Cincinnati to get us home late that evening. I just stood there, terrified at what was about to take place. See, I'd never driven his car. I had all this responsibility, and it was snowing, but I thought, you know what? It's not going to be so bad. He said, I'll sit up front with you. It's no big deal. So I think he saw the terror on my face, but we got in the car anyways. So I, stood, I sat in the driver's seat, and my uncle sat next to me, and we had not made it out of good old Hamilton County down there in southern Ohio till he looks at me and says, now when we get home, don't take Route 8. I want you to get off at MLK, MLK Boulevard. I like to go in through North Hill when I'm going home. I thought, why is he telling me this? We have three and a half hours to go. Two minutes later, I knew. <sighs> So there was me in the dark, somewhere southwest of Columbus, with the snow coming down and four sleeping Mikos in the car, <laughs> terrified at what was going on. So what did I do? I white-knuckled it. 
for three and a half hours back into Akron. And when we got off at MLK Boulevard, I woke my uncle and said, Uncle Mike, we're home. I was terrified that entire trip. I was terrified the moment he threw me the keys. But my uncle must have realized something that I didn't, that I had everything necessary to get his family home safely. But I had to accept that fact and focus on my task to get it done. And I remember thinking a few minutes into this drive as I'm hyperventilating when they're all asleep going, I can do this. I can do this. I can get these people home. I can get my cousins and my aunt and my uncle home safely. And the snow was terrible, very much like we had yesterday. But we made it home safely. I've done it. And since then, I have taken your kids to Passion Conference in Atlanta in snow like that many times. But I had to get my feet wet that very first time. I believe Paul was writing in the book of Corinth to a group of people who refused to take the keys in Cincinnati. A bunch of people who, when, when the responsibility and the intimidation of the responsibility came to them, they said, no thank you, I don't want the keys. They were looking to Uncle Paul and others, expecting them to get the family home. And Paul's going to write them something at the end of chapter 5, in the beginning of chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, that helps us know that we need, and the Corinthians need, to take the keys, accept the responsibility, because we have everything necessary to get the job done. Verse 19 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us, So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As we work together with him, we urge you also not to accept the grace of God in vain. For he says, at an acceptable time I have listened to you, and on a day of salvation I have helped you. So now is the acceptable time. See, now is the day of salvation. Big talk from the Apostle Paul here about who Jesus is, who he and his ministry partners are, and who the Corinthians are supposed to be. So as we break down this passage today, let's do that with those three things in mind. Who is Paul saying that Jesus is? Who is Paul saying that he and his ministry partners are? And three, who does he wish the Corinthian people, the church, to become? Well, we see very clearly from verse 19 and forward, Jesus is the one reconciling a lost world to God. He's bringing God and people back together. How does he do this? Well, it's simple according to the passage. He's not counting their trespasses against them. That which puts God over here and people over here and apart from one another is simple. Sin, trespasses. And from the first humans onward, we've been acting like jerks. I was watching a Facebook thread the other day, a post from a local business owner of mine who is a complete atheist. 
and just argues and makes argues with Christians and makes fun of Christians regularly. And his argument the other day, as I was looking at this, was very simply, well, what kind of God would allow human beings to be cursed just from that one man and one woman sinning? Well, I don't know that God, God's intent was to curse us all because of that one sin, so much as that one sin let sin into the world, and human beings were happy to continue the family trait of being jerks, of being sinners. So each one of us has just taken our genetics and worked with them. We hurt ourselves with unwise actions, and that's upset God because it, he's created us to thrive. A lot of times people say, well, why does it care? It's not hurting anybody but me. Well, God gave you your life, so it's hurting him. He gave you your life to thrive. That song on the radio, oh, you know what I'm talking about? Really annoying. Anyhow, we were made to thrive. And I first heard that and I thought, oh, what new age? Oh, no, that's true. That, that is true. God did create us to thrive. That's why he's not happy with us when we sin against ourselves, when our unwise actions mess up our minds and our hearts and our bodies because he created us to thrive and to use those for his glory, use those to the fullest, which, by the way, as we argued last week, would bring us the most joy as well. So we're jerks who hurt ourselves, but we're also jerks who hurt others. Selfish people. And we upset the potential of others to thrive. And finally, sometimes beyond being unwise and hurting ourselves, and sometimes beyond being jerks and hurting others, we go to fantastic levels of selfishness, and we go to fantastic levels of corruption, and there are no better words for our actions than evil and wicked. Now most of us, operate on the unwise and jerk scale, right? But some people have just gone over and above the unwise and jerk scale straight to evil and wicked. Some of us, and I'll admit this for myself, have jumped to that scale a time or two and then jumped back. Jumped to that plane of evil and wicked rather than just being sinful and full of trespasses. And I would imagine if you thought back on your life, you would probably think of a few moments where what you did was downright evil, downright wicked. But for the most part, we operate often hurting ourselves and hurting others, sinning, or as I like to call it, being jerks. Now, this word trespasses and sin that are used here in verse 19 and following have a great connotation in the Greek. Now, for those of you who are newer to Scripture, the original Bible, New Testament, Matthew forward, was written in Greek. And the Greek language helps us here understand what we mean by sin and trespasses. And it really fits into this concept of thriving. The word for trespasses here means to fall outside of. To fall outside of. And the word for sin that's being used at the end of chapter 5 is to miss the mark. So you put those concepts together and think to yourself, when I'm messing up, when I'm hurting myself, or when I'm hurting others through my selfishness, I'm really falling outside of what God desires me to do. Falling outside of God's plan for my life. Falling outside of the, the thing that makes me thrive and helps others to thrive. That's what's... That's what trespassing is. Sin, on the other hand, 
is missing it. This is the way, this is the dead-on way, this is the straight line that you should be operating in, but you're shooting like that. That's like my golf swing, right there. We're missing the mark. Here's the hole, but you're slicing to the right and to the left. We're trying to get to a place as people that God has desired us to be. Let's call that, that hole, that, that flag, that pin, let's call that righteousness. And we as human beings have some wicked slices going to the right and to the left. We're missing the mark of the people that we're supposed to be. And some of us get right close to the green and we pull out our wedge and we bring it back and we swing and what we expected to roll just past the cup and then come back like this goes right over the green and back right back over the green. And that's who we are as people. People unable to make it to the place that we're supposed to be. And that's why Jesus came. For two reasons that we see here in First Corinthians cha- or 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Humanity is missing the mark. Humanity is falling outside of the goals that God has set for them. And that has left us the opposite of reconcile. That has left us alienated from God. God had a plan and a purpose for putting each one of us on the planet And our sin and our unrighteousness and sometimes our downright despicable behavior separates us further and further from God's plan for our lives. The wedge has been driven between God and humanity. That's why Jesus came, to be the great reconciler, to become sin for people who could not hit the mark themselves and to pay for those trespasses. You don't want to end up alienated from God. Because when you're alienated from God, two things are sure. Number one, you will never hit the mark or fall inside of that which truly brings joy and makes you happy. God did create you to thrive. But that thriving is in serving him and honoring him and loving him and doing his will on this earth. If you want to make it, In this life, you have to do it inside of God, not outside of God. And human beings are bad golfers. We don't we don't we don't golf, we don't hit par. We're people that completely have missed the mark. And in Jesus, God gives us the opportunity to be reconciled to God, to hit the mark, to fall inside of what God has for us to do and who God has for us to be. The second reason that you don't want to be alienated from God is that your body is not going to live forever. But that spirit inside of you is going to move on from this life. And if you push God away and push God away by continuing to miss the mark and stand outside of what he has for you, he's not going to make you love him for all eternity. He's not going to make you be the person that he desired for you to be while you lived for all eternity. He won't make you. He gave you free choice to either choose to want to be inside and on the mark or choose to want to live outside and away from the mark. You're not, your spirit's going to outlive your body. And he's not going to make you love him for all eternity. 
But for those of us found inside of his will and inside of his way and expect him to hit the mark for us, who say, Jesus, you take this shot. For those of us who know him, joy forevermore. But I'm pretty sure an eternity without the creator who loves us is going to be hell. Not going to be fun. Because any place that God isn't, I don't want to be. Jesus made sure that we don't have to live our lives missing the mark. And we don't have to be estranged from God for eternity. He paid the price on the cross for my sin and for your sin that we could be reconciled to God that God could exercise justice without exercising it upon us. So I praise God that I get to spend eternity living on Jesus' credit card rather than spend my life in eternity writing my own bad checks. And that's who Jesus is. He paved the way for you and he paved the way for me. He paid our way to God. That's why we worship him, and that's why we serve him. That's why Paul lives a life of desiring that people be reconciled to God. He wants people to be found in God's purpose for their life. He wants people to be found in a life that is full of joy, and he wants people for eternity to be in the place where they are connected to God. And that brings us to our second line of questioning here. Who does Paul say he and his ministry associates are? He says that they have been entrusted with the message of reconciliation and that they are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. People who are bringing the peace treaty, if you will, between God and humanity. Holy moly, what a trust. He's saying that he and his associates have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, and now they get to help others do the same. And in particular here in the book of 2 Corinthians, and it's sort of a theme throughout Paul's letters, he is so honored to be a Christian leader, so honored to be one that Jesus has thrown the keys to, that, that he, he says, folks, follow my lead. I know the Lord, and I've given my life to serving him. I'm an ambassador for him. I'm here to reconcile people to God. Follow my lead. And that's one of the main themes of the book of 2 Corinthians. He's so excited that he gets to be a person who helps people be found inside of what God has for them, to hit the mark with their life, and to know the God that loves them for eternity. That's who Paul is which leaves us with only one line of questioning, one line of thought left. Who does Paul say that the church is? Who does Paul say that the Corinthians are in this? Well, the interesting thing that Paul says here is be reconciled to God, Corinthians, which is funny. And it's funny because as far as we know, these people are already Christians, These people are already going to church. These people, just the fact that they would have read Paul's letter meant that they were in church and were Christians. So why does he want them to get closer and closer to God? 
Why does he want them to be even more reconciled to God than they already are by their confession of faith? And I, I, I thought about this, and I looked at this, and I read this, and I, 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 the only thing that I could think of as I was reading through this passage is that what Paul was using here when he said us was a collective us. That somewhere along the line here in 2 Corinthians, Paul stopped talking about, you know what, it's just me and my buddies who help people get reconciled to God. But instead said, no, it's not just me and my buddies who help get people reconciled to God. It's all of us. Not just me and Titus and Barnabas and Epaphras and all these others. But all of us. Verse 20, so we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us. And we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, I believe that it's a collective us because of what I see in verse 6. As we work together with him, we urge you also not to accept the grace of God in vain. For he says, at an acceptable time I have listened to you, and on a day of salvation I have helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. See, now is the day of salvation. So this concept of who the Corinthians needs to be has to be construed as a a collective us. It has to be construed as people needing to get closer to God for some reason. And it has to be construed with this concept in verse 6-1a. Not to accept the grace of God in vain. In the Greek, that's don't accept the grace of God, empty-handed, bringing nothing to the table. And then he goes on to say, listen, God has saved you. When, When you cried out to God, he met you there. He heard you. And now for these others, the day of salvation has come. Few places in Scripture are this emphatic. In the NRSV, see now. But for some of you who have other translations, behold, now. Behold, now is the time of salvation. I wasn't just yelling to yell. I was being emphatic like the Scripture. Behold, now. He says it twice in one sentence. Paul is freaking out as he's writing this. Now, behold, is the day of salvation. Christ met you. Don't accept the grace of God in vain. Don't be empty-handed coming to God. Don't do that. We are working together as ambassadors for Christ. Don't be empty-handed coming to the table. That's not good. How many of you have ever been the jerk at the dinner party that was the only jerk that didn't bring something? Oh, I have. My mother's cringing. I have, right? And this hasn't happened to me since I was married because my wife is very couth. She gets it. But can you imagine if we all go to a dinner party and we're sitting around the table and the host says thank you to my wife. She made such a lovely meal. 
Thank you to Tom and Amanda. They brought that beautiful Tuscan bread. Thank you to Wally and Arlen. They brought this wonderful dessert. And thanks to Matt and Gina for just gracing us with their presence. (laughs) That's coming to the table empty-handed. What of your Christianity? Are you just glad to grace God and us with your presence? Are you just glad to be at the table, but don't want to bring anything to the party? That's why Paul says, don't accept the grace of God empty-handed. Because today is the day of salvation. God met you when you needed him. But there are others who still need to be reconciled to God. They're living outside of what God has created them for. And that's a bad place to live because one, one t- at some point in their life, they're going to die. And they don't want to be living outside of what God has for them. Jesus made it clear that the purpose of coming to him was to engage in faithfulness to the kingdom of God. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Engage in faithfulness to the kingdom of God. Live inside of what God has created you for. What's the great benefit? If you live inside of what God has created you for in this life, he's going to draw you to his side in the next. Salvation is being saved from a life wasted and an eternity lost. We're not just trying to save people. We're not just trying to grab people and snatch them from hell. Because this life matters too, and it matters how we live it. We don't want to be people who just accept the grace of God empty-handed, happy on the highway to heaven. We are people, Paul says, who should be reconciled to God so that we can be ambassadors of reconciliation. And here's the key. You're fully equipped to be that. If you know Jesus, you're fully equipped equipped. Paul gets on this rant right after this, and that, I, I couldn't read like, you know, 16, 18 verses in one sermon. But will you skip down with me to the end of, or the middle of chapter 6, verse 8b, because Paul gets into this poetic, passionate statement about who we are as Christians. Verse 8b, he says, We are treated as imposters, yet we are true. As unknown, yet we're well known. As dying and see, we are alive. As punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. And as having nothing, and yet possessing everything. That's us. We don't have everything that the world says we need to have for awesomeness. We may not be rich. We may not be cool. We may not have stuff. But in God's economy, we are the richest of the rich because we know him. In God's economy, we have everything at our fingertips because we know the God who has everything at his. That's who we are. We may look oppressed, but we are thriving. 
because we know Jesus and we know his purpose for our lives and we know why we were placed on this puny little planet in this massive galaxy. We know why. Don't you see if you know Jesus, you have everything you need to help others know Jesus. And knowing him is to be alive and joyful and rich and possessing everything you need. And there are some of you in this room today, and I am positive of this, you need to be reconciled to Jesus. Your life screams, I am outside of what I need to be inside of. I have missed the mark again and again and again, and I've paid the price. I need Jesus in my life. I need the one who can be righteousness for me. I'm ready to submit my life to God. It's a good thing to do. Because then you'll live. Then you'll be rich. Then you'll possess everything. And for others of us today, people who are looking at these words and going, today is the day of salvation, great. I know where this is headed. Because you already know in your spirit you didn't bring anything to the party. Or maybe once you brought something to the party but you're empty-handed today that the grace of God is just your ticket to heaven and church is merely for enjoyment. But people need to be reconciled to God and God wants you to help in that work. God's tossing you the keys in Cincinnati and you're looking at him and you're going... No, thank you. Don't want them. It's too big a risk. I'm scared. I'll never, I'll never be bold. I'll never step out. And God's saying, no, you possess everything you need to be a minister of reconciliation. Look, I have another set. Take the keys. Take the keys. God, you don't understand. I'm not that wise, I'm not that smart, I'm not that bold, I'm not that eloquent. I don't know what you would, would, would do to me if I became a spiritual person. I don't know what would happen to me if I began to share that I have found life and joy and peace and contentment in Jesus Christ, that I have a purpose for my life. I don't know what would happen if I did that. God says, take the keys and find out. You possess everything you need. Everything you need. Everything you need. To reconcile a lost and a dying world to a Savior who loves them and who has called them by name and who wants to bring hope for the hopeless. Peace, forgiveness, and joy to a world without it. It's a great feast that we're at here in America at a church with many other people who know Jesus and serve him. Let's not come to the feast empty-handed. Let's take the keys because we possess everything we need. Let's pray. 
with every head bowed and every eye closed in this place today. I make two appeals for prayer. One, today if you're in this place and you know, guess what, Pastor Matt, I know that my life is missing the mark. I know that I need Jesus. I know that God wants to reconcile me to him, that he has a better plan for my life than my goofy plan. Because my plan hasn't worked. I am no closer to peace and joy and contentment than I ever was or ever thought I'd be. I'm no closer. If that's you today, the elders of our church, the guys who help in leading this community of people reconciled to God are just going to be standing at the front. And I just want you to come to one of them and say, I heard the message today and I need Jesus in my life. Would you pray with me? So in a moment, when I pray, you come. In church, for you today, you who have been reconciled to God, you who know him with your full heart, but say, you know what, God? I'm a little embarrassed. I feel like I've been coming to the party empty-handed. I'm refusing the keys in Cincinnati. But I know you want more of me, God, and I know you ask more of me, God, and I know that I have found Jesus and I want other people to find Jesus, but I don't know what that looks like and I don't know how to begin, but I just need to step out and do it and I just want to pray today, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Or maybe you've been doing it for a long time. You say, Lord, help me more. Help me more. I want you to come today and I'd like you to pray in this altar because there's power in moving towards God and saying, God, I want more of you. So no agenda today, no great thing that you have to perform here, but I do want to invite you, if this message is spoken to you today, to make this time a time of prayer to the Lord, to ask for his help and his direction and his guidance as you try to affect people for the kingdom of God. So these altars are open, and I invite you to come when I begin to pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we know who you are. We know that you desire to use us. We know that you desire to let us live a full life serving you, Jesus. Help us, God. Help us, God, to step out in faith. Help us, God, to not refuse the keys. Help us, God, to recognize we have everything that we possess. And help us, God, to realize we can't do it on our own. We need you. No resolution that we just make in our heads to go share with somebody is enough because we've told ourselves a hundred times that we would and that we will. We come to you today in prayer because we need your strength, your power, your wisdom, your guidance to do it. Make us ambassadors today, Lord Jesus. We're not awesome, but you are. We're not strong, but you are. We're not wise, but you are. 
Lord, help us not to stay in a place of pride and say, I've got it. I know how to do it. I'm good. Help us to come in humility and say, God, help me. I want to be an ambassador for you. And today, if you are in this place and you say, Pastor Matt, I need Jesus and I know it. I don't want to live apart from him one moment longer. I invite you to come. The band's going to play. People are going to pray. But there's someone who wants to pray with you today to invite Jesus into your life. Congregation, we remain in the spirit of prayer for the next few minutes.